My name is Barry Brown, and I'm one of the pastors, and I'm glad to share this word today. I was thinking about uh, a lead-in that I thought was kind of interesting, and I discovered something about uh, Ecclesiastes, and it'll be surprising to you. I was going to ask you, uh, when is the last time you were in a tent? I mean a tent, T-E-N-T, a tent, all by yourself, when you were just, you know, in a tent alone. Probably not too often, right? But I was thinking back when I was hiking, I was doing some hiking, backpacking and all, and the tent I had was a backpacking tent, a real small one that was sort of like a tube, and you kind of crawled into it. It was very, very tight, kind of like an MRI tube. (laughs) But anyway, it worked just fine, and I remember that and doing that several times. That was before I met Wendy. I was single and doing those kind of, I like that. And then I remember as a kid uh, being in a tent in the backyard, in my neighbor's backyard and stuff. I remember that very faintly. I remember it, but I remember it uh, and stuff. Uh, Those are probably the only times that I was in a tent alone, really, for any length of time. But I do remember a time when I was in a tent with my family, and our tent was a big, we called it the Taj Mahal, because it was 12 feet by 12 feet, and you can stand up in it. That's the kind of tent it was. And we were at Mount Shasta area uh, camping, and it was, uh, it was, it was, it was going to be really fun. But in the middle of the night, we had some noise outside our tent, and there was some camp equipment that was being uh, knocked around by a bear. A bear, and that was like a new experience. Uh, and so I was the most courageous person. I was terrified. <laughs> anyway, and, um, and the bear's making noise, and I'm so glad that somebody told us to put our food in the car. <laughs> anyway, my wife, she's different than me. Uh, unfortunately, she's sick today, so she's not here. She'd be going, oh, no. Anyway, she would, she, we had this big tent, and on the top of the where you zipped it down, there was a little bit like you could see out the tent if you stood up. And here's my wife standing up, looking at the bear, and I'm saying, oh, look at And all of a sudden, there's two bears now, two bears, and she's going, oh, look at them. And I go, look at them. Oh, they're going to see you. And I'm pulling her down and everything. I'm tackling my wife in the tent, you know, because I'm terrified. And uh, we laugh about that. Well, that was, that was a real experience. And thank goodness for some veterans that knew what they were doing. They started banging pots and pans, and the bears scurried off. And whoo, I thought they were going to come back. I never slept a, a wink after that. Anyway, that was uh, a tenting experience uh, and that. So I was thinking about uh, being in a tent. And actually, uh, I think my overall sense about being in a tent is positive, even though you have to sleep on the ground. I, I like uh, the sense of uh, uh, what can happen, you know, just kind of a, uh, in, the, in, the, in the nighttime, uh, the fresh air, and there's uh, the, the sounds, the crickets and all that. Uh, and then just really kind of like honing in on a sense of contentment in those moments and thinking about what is so great about a life and people and things like that. And that's my lead-in to Ecclesiastes. It's really kind of like surprising. But believe it or not, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had, uh, had a, a sense of practicing something that is still true today. It's called Sukkot, the festival of Sukkot. And you know what the Jewish people do? For a whole week, they stay in a tent alone, 
just them. And uh, I have a tent right there. That's, they, they put these things up in their yards and in the parks and stuff like that. And they spend a week in a tent. They eat simple meals and they reflect and they contemplate what's most important. And they do that because they lived in shelters. They sometimes called the festival of shelters, this Sukkot. And when they were in shelters, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And they, they kind of reflect about what did it mean to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And so from September 29th to October 6th, they're going to have the festival of Sukkot this year again. And they're going to do the same kind of thing, reflect on what's important. And you know what they're going to do as a very significant part of being in the tent alone? They're going to read Ecclesiastes. That's right. And they're going to reflect on what is Solomon saying. And one of the rabbis, Rabbi Mordecai Yaffe, he had a, a comment about you know, the significance of his Ecclesiastes and how it connects with this um, Sukkot uh, festival. Ecclesiastes urges people to rejoice in their portion and not run after increased wealth. A person who enjoys what he has, it is a gift from God. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is very special to the Jewish people, and they believe that hidden in this book, you find what is most meaningful in life. And so Solomon's been telling us a lot about what isn't very meaningful, but we're going to discover something today that's going to kind of pop off the page, jump off the page. Now, this 40 years in the wilderness really taught the people that God provides and he can provide. They didn't do anything to provide food. He sent manna and quail from heaven. And then their sandals and their, their clothes, they did not wear out. And they were protected from their enemies. And it took a while, but finally they discovered after 40 years that God is faithful and he would take care of them. And they hadn't believed that previously. And they came to that understanding and they celebrated with this festival every week. They spend a week in a tent, which is meant to remind them of what is really important and how empty life is apart from Yahweh. And they read the book of Ecclesiastes to do it. So, I want you to pull out your tent. A tent just for you. Only you. And I want you to hunker down. And I want to enter in today with that kind of posture. What might God say to me in this tent? All alone. That would be of, of, of meaning and importance. Let's find out. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And uh, we're in our tents. And we're ready to go, right? Here we go. Ecclesiastes 4. Let's do it. It begins this way. He's going to be in a similar kind of uh, frame of mind. He's going to say, and again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have, have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. I declared that the dead who, are already, who, who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. 
and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one's, a person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked. And literally, if, if you have, uh, it's just interesting that they translate it this way. It's, it's really, he never asked himself. He never asked himself, why am I doing this? Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. However, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And it's a, uh, a very significant text. And we will talk about its meaning as we're together, of course. And it sounds similar, at least a part of it sounds very similar to what we've been discussing in Ecclesiastes and what Tyler's been presenting to us. And there's some, you know, heavy ideas in here, like better to not have been born. That's not really a great idea, right? And it kind of goes along with this message that has to do with living under the sun. And living under the sun is mentioned uh, several times, three different times in this text. And all of this is... Solomon continuing to bemoan the monotony of life, and he calls it Hevel, H-E-B-E-L. The Hebrew, for something fleeting or empty, that kind of thing, uh, where we're trying to grab everything and anything that life has to offer, and it's like grabbing puff of, a, of smoke, like Tyler so illustrated so well. Grab that smoke, and oh, it's, it's gone, fleeting. Empty, Havel. So he, he shares that. And, and we get the sense that we're kind of like in, in a similar vein. And it's purposeful, this similar kind of feel to Ecclesiastes until we come to really the power of this chapter. So let's take a look. Let's kind of run through this. We see, uh, I notice, first of all, there are four references to I saw. I look and I saw. That's, that's important. It's like um, Solomon is observing life and he's making some uh, evaluations. He's observing and evaluating when he says, I saw. It's like he's watching the evening news and he's saying, wow, this world's messed up. That's what he's saying. Because in verse 1 he says, there's lots of oppression in this world. And lots of people are oppressed. And there are some people in authority that oppress them. And he observes this and he says, that's... That really, that is really tough. It's a difficult world. And then he says in chapter, in verse 4, that was verse 1, verse 4. Then in verse 4 he says, 
ah, there's all kinds of envy and competition. People trying to push and pull their way through life. Get what they want. And it's got to be better than anyone else. He notices that. He observes that in uh, verse 4. He, that kind of is highlighted. And then in verse 7, in verse 7, he says, look at all this effort, this strenuous effort to accomplish, get things, possess, and it's never enough. It's never enough. And no one is asking why. No one seems to know why. It's just what we do. It's just our lot in life. This is the way you do life. He says, that is Havel, empty and fleeting. And so there's oppression, there's envy, there's never enough under the sun. Sounds very much like chapters 1, 2, and 3, doesn't it? And it is. It really is. So here we are. We're today uh, invited... I've invited you to get in a tent and think over this. And you know what I want you to do? And you know what I think Solomon wants you to do? He wants you to let go. He wants you to let go of this pursuit of getting more. Let go of it. He is telling us to let go of envy and competition. It is uh, chasing after the wind. He's telling us to let go of the push and pull that's so prevalent in our world. No, no. He's inviting us to something different, to consider something different. And he lived it. And he says it didn't work. So that's his observation. And it leads to what he calls better. And he uses the word better three different times. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. And he's talking about he's building up a sense of momentum with better. Now, better is a positive word usually, but it starts pretty low. This idea of better is way down here. It begins way down here. And he says, uh, the better part is better not to be born. Now, that doesn't sound like uh, really a, a great better, but that's the, what he starts with, the better not to be, have been born. And here's what I think. This is what I, I, I perceive that he is getting at. It is life under the sun is better not to be born without the hope of heaven. Without the hope of heaven, it's better not to be born, right? When you think about that, that, make, that makes sense. You see, if it, you don't have the hope of heaven and you go through the pain of life and there's no connection, there's separation from God and eternity is that way too, better not to be born. Better not to be born. That makes sense. Someone that lives life out, a short little, um, you know, vapor that this is, and then they're gone apart from God, never to have connection with God, existing eternity without God. Better not to have been born. Wow. And then number two, the second better is getting into a poem of, of kind of, of a proverb, really. And it's in verses 5 and 6, a very kind of important proverb, well known to the Jewish people, this, this perspective. And Solomon uses it here. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. What does that mean? Well, they don't do anything. They're lazy. They don't pursue anything. And that's foolish. But better, going to be surprising, better to have only one handful. It didn't say only, but that's the idea. 
better to only have one handful with tranquility or quietness or contentment or peace than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Isn't that interesting? It is such an uh, impressive proverb to me and it's talking about that it's better to have just one handful realizing that you have enough than two handfuls and wanting more. That's what it's saying. So the fool doesn't do anything, but even the greater fool is the one that has both his or her hands grasping after it, and it's like smoke. He talks about that better. And then he leads to, oh, and I, I was thinking about, I, I got to tell you this about the proverbial monkey. I mean, verse 6 is the proverbial monkey. You know about the monkey? You got your coconut? You put, you, you put a hole in a coconut, you know, and empty it out and everything in the middle? It's pretty basic, empty in the middle. But anyway, you get that hole and you put like maybe some fruit or some nuts or something sweet in the coconut. And then you tie the coconut to a tree and the monkey, they've got a good sense of smell. They know what's going on. And they put their hand inside the coconut, and when they start touching the fruit and the nuts and nuts, they hang on, right? And they never let go. And they hang from a tree holding on to their sweets, and they're captured. So is our man with two fists clasped around the things of this life and saying, I've got the, the monkey by the tail. That's another expression. Made that up. That's good. Mr. Self-Sufficient. Mr. Self-Sufficient has no contentment, doesn't ask why, that kind of thing. You see this better? Now, it goes a little better. Hey, one handful, that's better, just one handful. Now we really, we're going to talk about the better he's been leading to the whole time. It's really uh, clearly better. Number three, better. This means that really... He's pointing to what's best. Two are better than one. Two are better than one. Two together are better than one alone. And it's just like the way that this reads and how it so matches the first three verses, we are getting to a place where he is now going to give us a sense that there is some meaning. There is something worth pursuing there. there, there this is more than a vapor. This is really valuable. This is absolutely worthwhile. And we're in our tent and we're contemplating it and we're realizing the most meaningful things in our life aren't things. We're, we're realizing that. And he's helping us see that. And we're reading Ecclesiastes and we're contemplating and we're saying, you know, the most precious things in life are found with people. That's what he's teaching us. And it's so good. So here we are. We're ready to go. And we're, we're, we're going to look again at the text. And we're going to show that he points to two uh, realities in life. Two ways of approaching things. And the first one is, and it's vapor, alone. Alone. He talks a lot about being alone. Uh, and he's suggesting that our uh, being alone is a choice. And we have 
we, we can move in a different direction, but there's so many connections to alone. For, for example, like in verse 1, verse 1, you have the uh, tension and the oppression of our world, and it says they have no comforter. They have no comforter. They're all alone. And when you're all alone, it's hard to find comfort. Loneliness is so prevalent in our world, and comfort is so hard to come by. And trying to do it just on a, a, in a social media kind of connection just can feel so like, oh, is this even real? So comfort, no comfort, hard to come by. And then in verse 4, he points to envy and the competitive nature of life and pushing and pulling my way to get to the top. And you know what they say about getting to the top? It's lonely at the top. It's lonely there too. And so loneliness, he's weaving loneliness through this whole thing and he's just showing us how empty it is. And then after that, he talks about the person with two fists, two fists full of stuff. And it doesn't matter. No longer can the two-fisted guy reach a hand out to anyone else. But how about the one person who believes that they have, have enough, that God has provided enough and they have one hand, then they have another hand left to them to reach out to another person and actually connect. Alone. Alone, so prevalent that the man is described in verse 8 as there was a man all alone, all alone. And he went for everything and he had lots of wealth and he didn't ask himself why. And his life was empty, a miserable business. That's what he calls it, a miserable business. It got me to thinking now, you know, a lot of us are employed during the day and week and so on and and uh, I just wondered about how do people feel about their jobs? I, I did a little research, doesn't take too long anymore. And you find, well, in America, how many people, I mean percentage-wise, actually really hate their jobs? I mean, that's a strong word, isn't it? That, that they hate their jobs. It's, it's a miserable business, you know. You know how many? 55%. It kind of blew me away. I've always loved my job. 55%. No, I, it isn't just like I'd rather have another job. No, 55%. I hate my job. <sighs> Two-fisted. Miserable business. Well, this alone thing is very strong, and, and it comes out right in the beginning of the book called The Bible. Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18. You know what that says? God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Alone. So there you have it. This idea of being alone. I was remembering when I was a, uh, a kid. I was 14 years old and my parents moved from Minneapolis to St. Louis because uh, of my dad's job. It was in November. It was kind of a weird time to move for a ninth grader. And I was brought into a large school and, and uh, went to classes. Didn't know anybody. Tried out for some sports teams, made the basketball team, sat on the bench. I was so alone. Well, my parents realized that they saw how, you know, kind of unmotivated I was and just how 
uh, difficult life was for me. And they decided, well, let's see if we might help. And so they, they uh, made it available that I might go to a school that was sponsored by the church we attended. A Lutheran school, but a private school. Uh, about a third the size, a lot smaller and everything. A sophomore year, I went to that school. And within a month, I was so happy. I was so happy. I had friends. And I was playing sports and doing things and enjoying it. You know, there's a lot of people that are alone in our world. They don't have to be. Sometimes I don't even know how to kind of like go on a, a, a different pathway. Maybe we can help them. Maybe we can, by our own genuine connection and friendship, that they could see that there really is something meaningful in life. And it's not found in stuff. It's found in people. That's what he says here. The rest of it is all about this connection. The meaningful approach to life. Finally it comes out. Here he is. It is like so strong. It's undeniable. Connection is what really matters. It's going to be meaningful. It's going to be worthwhile. It's going to make a difference in your life. And it's going to make a difference in at least another person's life. For those Four verses, 9 through 12, we have Solomon talking about the significance of connection. And oftentimes, I've read this text in a wedding, right? I've, I've shared these words because um, a wedding represents two is better than one, <laughs> for sure. And there's some things that seemingly apply really well uh, to what it means to have a uh, strong, healthy marriage. But I think, as I've thought about it more so, and you would see it too, it, it goes way beyond just marriage. Marriage is included, and it works, absolutely. But it really frees it up for connection with friendship, singles, and, uh, and the meaning of life found in connection with people. And so that's, that, that's the idea. So we're, we're in a tent. We're all alone, right? On purpose. And we're ready. We're going we're gonna to shed our propensity to pursue stuff. And we're going to leave room in our lives to be able to pursue people. That's what we're going to do. And how are we going to do it? Well, he gives us some good wisdom in these verses. And they, they're, they're not too complicated. You could come up with them yourself. But it, it starts with work. Work. Working side by side and uh, working in, in a way that is enjoyable because you're with someone else at least. And it's more productive for sure. And it is a meaningful way to work. Um, partnerships and working make sense to all of us, I think. I remember painting my, staining my fence and uh, working at it all by myself. And I'm thinking, I hate this. <laughs> and I'm doing it. And I'm not going very fast. And two Saturdays, at least a portion of two Saturdays, are giving up painting this, staining this fence. And then my youngest son says, hey, Dad, I sold you the paint, the stain. I'll come and help you paint it. I go, okay, good idea. So he came over, and the two of us went at that thing. I wasn't even halfway done, and he came over, and we got the whole thing done in a lot faster time. It was way more fun, and he even complimented me. 
I mean, he's 28 years old and I'm not. And he said, yes, you, you worked really hard, Dad. He did not say, though. And you did just as much as I did. He didn't say that. <laughs> but we got that fence done together. And he can't complain. He got a free dinner out of it. Anyway, doing it together, working together makes sense to help each other succeed. And talk about help. Number two, help each other with support. It's really clear. A friend falls and no one's around. They're stuck. They're bruised. They might not be able to get up easily. But with a friend... You can help them up. And it's not just this physical kind of tripping or falling or stumbling. It can be this spiritual sense of stumbling. When we stumble and we get in a, a wrong place, make some wrong decisions and uh, dishonor our testimony. Then if we have someone that's a friend in our life, they can help us get away, to lift up, to restore. Even in Galatians chapter 6, it says, Restore your brother or sister who stumbled gently. So restoring, being together, uh, helping each other. And then the, this a message, this very practical message about keeping each other warm. It's practical in the ancient uh, world because they didn't have uh, central heat, you know. And also they would, it would be cold at night. And they could warm each other as they slept near each other. But the idea behind that, it goes farther than that, of course. We got close, which is tenderness. I think of it as a genuine love. To be close enough to a person to really express genuine love. As Proverbs 18.24 says, There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That idea. And so I think of marriage. I, I, I think of it that way. The closest of marriage. The, way, the gift of marriage and the way God intended marriage to be. To be close and share in that way. But I also think beyond that. Obviously, today I'm thinking of really the, the significance of a, a friendship that shares affection, openly speaks words of affection and affirmation, Th those kind of things. When you have a friend that speaks into your life, it's a glimpse of heaven. And no thing can do that. The gift of God, of sharing Love and encouragement and blessing. It's heaven on earth. And that's what Solomon is saying. He's telling us, and then just think of this strength, this, this commitment and sacrifice that makes a, a, a friendship strong and lasting. All that's in there, very practical, that we work in the enjoyment of accomplishing something together, much more meaningful with another and then we have this helping and, and walking alongside. If you walk alongside someone, chances are that they won't fall as often and they may not fall at all because you're there right by their side. And if they wobble a little bit, you bring them back to, to stability. And, and you have the closeness I'm talking about, the strength that you find. Here it is. The, the connection that God had in mind for you and me is that we, our lives would be more stable. They would be more secure. And they would be way more meaningful. And that's what Solomon is saying. The gift of friendship. I was telling Tyler, I really have a heart for this sense of the quality of our connections as people, as God's people. And I said, I'd like to teach a class on the importance of healthy relationships. He said, 
all right, Dad, it's not exactly what I had in mind for the Institute, but, you know, uh, you're my dad, so we'll go with it. <laughs> anyway, I'm teaching a class on the importance of healthy relationships, all right? And it's the biblical, there's so much in the Bible about how to do quality relationships that, well, there's my advertisement. But we also have a class on theology from Craig Kuhn. Come on, I, I have to teach a class or I'd be going to that one. Oh, no, I already went to Tyler's class on the cultural dynamics of gender and sexuality. That is a knock-out-of-the-park class, I'm telling you. And then Steve, I, met, I know Steve and his uh, um, foundation about spiritual formation and how to grow as a disciple of Christ, so great. You can't miss these classes. And if you don't have anyone that really feels good to you, just come to mine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's a best in this, this text, and, you, and I can't, I should probably end, but I'm not going to end because there's a best part, and it's really cool, and I think it has a lot of meaning to it, and it's that last phrase, a cord of three strands, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Some translations put it that way, a threefold cord is not quickly broken, and and to kind of try to understand what Solomon might be saying there. There's been a little bit of uh, uh, ideas and debate about maybe he just meant that two is pretty good and three might be even better. I bet we could knock off that fence faster with three people than two. Probably could. But I don't think that's what he's saying, honestly. It could be. Three uh, is a good number sometimes. I mean... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not bad, right? <laughs> but um, I'm thinking of three with the idea of, like in, in, in the, a marriage ceremony I did not too long ago, where the people asked me to take a cord and in a certain part, a part of the ceremony to tie it around their hands. And in just one, long, one uh, threaded cord and wrap it around the hands, uh, each other's hands, and then there they were in the bond. The third cord created the bond. It was symbolic, but also very powerful because it illustrates, I think, something that I think you would agree with, that when God is a part of something, it gets a lot better, a lot stronger, even more meaningful when God is that third cord, when the Lord Jesus Christ is in the middle of that. And that's what they were symbolizing in their marriage. And I think... I think that Solomon's pointing to that. I, I think he's, he's kind of a teaser because by the end of the book, he's going to tell you, you know what really matters is the fear of God and obeying him. That's what he's going to say at the end. And I think he's getting us to think about that third chord that represents the presence of God in our friendships, in our relationships. So important. So I want to ask you to consider this. Some of you are married. What would it mean to intentionally invite and include and concentrate on the fact that God is that third chord, Christ is that third chord? How could that enhance your marriage? How could you bring Jesus into your marriage more so? Think about it. It'll make a big difference. How about your friendships? Friendships that are um, two believers, a couple of brothers, a couple of sisters together. As believers, how could you enhance that relationship by bringing Christ into that? 
What would that look like? How could you, how could you enhance the, the, this cord, this threefold cord that would be so much stronger? And how about the sense of having a friend who at this point doesn't believe, hasn't put faith in Jesus? What would it be like to be their friend to help them to discover Jesus and his love and his forgiveness? It makes everything so much more meaningful. I have just told you about things that last forever. The soul of men and women lasts forever. And here we are, so tempted in the world to get distracted, preoccupied, and move in a direction that's about things. When Solomon told us that life that really matters is about people. Whew. Worship team, communion. That's not exactly the way I thought it was going to end, but <laughs> I can think of the things that I remember most, and they're not stuff that I did. They were the people that I was with. And you know that too. So here's communion. Communion. What does communion have about to say to us about meaningful connections with people? It has a lot to say to us. Because I'm not very good at marriage. I'm not that great of a husband in and of myself. But Christ, with his help, he can, do, he can improve me quite a bit. And he has. And so communion represents to me what Jesus means to me and how he can help me. And when I take communion in my own tent here today, all by myself, a private connection of dedication to the Lord, I'm going to say, Jesus, help me to be the husband you want me to be. When I take communion, I have some friends in my life, and I enjoy doing things with them and all. But how can I, Lord, with your help, influence them in a way that would bless their life and help them to draw closer to you? See, communion is going to be me, my connection with Jesus and how he could then empower me to be the person he wants me to be in marriage and friendship and reaching people that I know in my life that need Christ. So... Communion is always a significant meal because it represents really what the Lord can do, will do, and needs to do in our lives so that we have the right focus, people, and we, with the goal in heart, want to lift them up, connect, love, 